So Easter is the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Now, as a side note, I will tell you that uh, we had a group of people who were here uh, yesterday. If you were here on Good Friday, you know it looked a lot different. Uh, And there was a group here working yesterday um, for 12 hours, transforming uh, our sanctuary from Good Friday to to Easter morning. Uh, And it was even beyond that, this team of people have been transforming uh, our space. They have created new spaces. Uh, The the cafe uh, in the lobby, they have been working on the prayer room and the gathering space. Uh, We have been working within our uh, youth to to expand their room. Uh, Right now, our children uh, are worshiping in a new space downstairs that is designed uh, specifically for them. All of this has been in the works for the last three months to prepare for this day. And you may think, well, that's a lot of work to go in to one day. Uh, But the reality is, uh, Easter, we are not celebrating an event that just simply happened 2,000 years ago. We are celebrating an event that has reverberated through history uh, to impact us even today. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his ministry was vindicated. We see his identity is affirmed for us. And all of his works, all of his teachings are absolutely validated. But it even goes beyond more than that, that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we celebrate that hate, evil, darkness, racism, prejudice, Even death do not have the final word in life. The worst thing is not the last thing. And this is a message that continues to seize our heart and give us hope even today. Now, for the past six weeks, we have been looking at the gospel from the eyes of Luke. I had hoped that over during Lent that we would spend time just understanding what the gospel says, uh, how it applies to our life, and we've been looking particularly at just one gospel's perspective. It would make sense for us to do that again today and to look at Luke's version of the resurrection. Uh, But as my wife can tell you, I always or don't always do things that make sense. And so today we are going to look at the gospel of John. Um, Christ's resurrection gives us hope because what we can see is that we can see that we are included in that resurrection. And so it gives us hope for eternal life, but we also understand that Easter is a command for us. Easter demands something of us. Easter is not just simply a blessing for us, but it actually asks something of us. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We go back to Easter morning Mary Magdalene uh, is coming to the tomb early Easter morning. When she gets there, uh, she is she's weeping. Um, what we what do we know about Mary Magdalene? One is that she is a single woman. Now, how do we know that? Well, in Jesus's day, women were known by the name of their husband, so they would be Mary, wife of. But she is Mary Magdalene. So she is Mary of Magdala. Magdala was a city 
on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee. So she did not go by her husband's name, so we know that she was a single person. We know not only is that she is a single woman, but she had trouble in her past. One of the Gospels tells us that she had seven demons. Now, we understand that demon affliction was thought of differently in Jesus' day than uh, than we think of it now. Anything they did not understand, they attributed it to demon affliction. Um, but what we see is that she was at least troubled until she met Jesus Christ. When she met Jesus, Jesus set her free from the demons that surrounded her, and she found hope, she found peace, she found love. Maybe for the very first time, she became to a place where she loved Jesus and she followed Jesus. And over the next three years, she followed him. She grew in her faith, not only in Jesus, but in the God that he preached and the God that he demonstrated. But let me tell you something this morning. Three years of faith building was almost destroyed by three days of torture and death. And she arrives at the grave Easter morning with her heart broken. Her faith shattered. Jesus is gone. And she is full of sorrow. And Mary represents every single one of us. When we have situations in our life where we are full of sorrow and we are full of grief, it's just a part of the human existence. And our response to those situations either takes the form of Mary or we take the form of the disciples who are huddled up in a room fearful because they're fearful that the people who killed Jesus are going to kill them. That's the two responses that we typically have. The Christian faith is God's response to those two conditions. Now, every religion offers some answer to the existential dilemma of death. The Christian response, my response, is resurrection. First, the resurrection of Christ, and then included in that is our own resurrection. And what we see is that on Easter morning, Mary, full of sorrow and grief, is turned to joy and hope. The disciples later, when they see Jesus, their fear gives way to courage and peace. And that's really what we come to understand when we realize the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus promises that we are included in that resurrection. Let's look at some of the words that Jesus says in the chap- in, in the book of John, in John chapter 5. It says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Chapter 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. In John chapter 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples just before his arrest. And he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. 
We can see in these words, these wonderful promises, promises of hope. But what I do want you to hear and understand this morning is these remain simply promises until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And on Easter morning, when Jesus is raised from the dead, it confirms that these promises are true. Now, we often are curious as to what that life will look like. Many think of pearly gates and streets of gold, and the Bible only talks about that image one time. The dominant image of heaven, the dominant image of what life is going to be like after this life is a party. And more specific, it's a wedding reception, a wedding banquet. I will remind you that in the first century, people did not save money to send their kids to college. They saved money to provide a wedding for their children because it was the single greatest moment of their lives. Wedding events were not simply just two hours with a a reception and a punch bowl and punch and some multicolored mints. It was seven days of singing and dancing and laughter and music and food and wine. It was a pinnacle experience of the year. If friends or family understood that somebody in their family was getting married, they they made sure that they were there. We got to remember that they didn't go to Florida for spring break. They didn't have Disney World that they could go to. That everybody would make sure that they were at this one particular event because it was the highlight of the year. When authors of the Old Testament and authors of the New Testament Look for a way to describe what heaven is like. This is the image that they use, a wedding banquet. And I will tell you that most every time I have known anyone who has had what they claim to be a near-death experience, it is always consistent with this image. I had a friend of mine who shared with me one time his experience, and he said that, There was just such a level of peace. But he was there and people were clapping and and there were loved ones who had passed away that were there. And everything was beautiful. And as he began to get brought back to this life, he didn't want to come back because it was so peaceful and so joyful. It was full of laughter and joy. People surrounding you. This is the image that we are given in the New Testament and Old Testament and affirmed by many peoples. I don't know whether they're true or not. It's just near-death experiences always seem to be consistent with this image. Now, in John's Gospel, John or Jesus talk about eternal life 42 different times, more than Matthew, Mark, Luke combined. So we have to know that it's a big deal for John. And what's interesting is that when Jesus talks about eternal life, he always talks about it not as something that you have in the future, but something that you have right now in the present. Eternal life starts now, according to Jesus. And I think what the scripture is saying is knowing that this afterlife, whatever it is going to be, that afterlife is this joyful experience, this beautiful place of joy and peace. It should affect how you live today. It changes how you live your life. It changes how I live my life. We are just simply in what I would call the precursor 
to the grandest adventure before us. So yes, we grieve. We grieve differently. We're sad when we lose loved ones. It's not saying that we shouldn't have that experience. But it brings me great confidence and peace to know that the loved ones who pass on are in a place where they are experienced complete and utter joy. If you walk through this life and you believe that this is just simply the end, how utterly depressing. But with the confidence of resurrection, we have hope, we have peace, we have confidence, we have expectation. And it changes everything. Don't get me wrong, I... I, 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 it's not that I'm not ready to die. I'm ready to die, but but I don't want to die right now. I, I, I want to grow old. I want to, to, to grow old with my wife, Claire. I want to watch my kids um, grow up, and get married, and have children in a while, for sure. I want to see what God is doing in this place. But I also know that I have done my best to be faithful. Fight the good fight, as Paul says. That's what Easter tells us. But there's also a a, a command, a demand that Easter brings to us. I'll, I'll ask it to you in this way because... I had someone ask me a question one time. They said, would you believe in Jesus if there is no heaven? Think about that this morning. Would you believe in Jesus if there is no heaven? And my answer to them would be the same thing that I would tell you today. Absolutely, positively, yes. I don't follow Jesus because he's my ticket to heaven. I follow Jesus because I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I I follow Jesus because when I am close to him, I am more alive than any other time in my life. I follow Jesus because when I'm doing the things that are right, I'm always doing things that he teaches me to do. I follow Jesus because when I look at the problems that I have in my own life or the problems in this world, globally and as a country, all of them would probably be resolved if we would simply follow his commands to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. I would honestly follow Jesus regardless of whether there is a heaven or not. I'm just thankful that that's included in the promise. When we read the gospel of John, and really it's true for the other gospels as well, but when we read the gospel of John, Jesus's primary focus is not on heaven. Jesus's primary focus is on the here and now. Go and look at the, at, at the parables. The parable we looked at a few weeks ago uh, in Luke, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, the hero of the story was, was the Samaritan who went and, and actually bent down and helped the neighbor, helped the person who was, who was injured and said, I'm going I'm to take care of you. There's a parable about the, the last judgment and it says that we're separated. The sheeps and the goats, it said the, the measure is going to be stopping and go, when somebody was hungry, did you feed them? When somebody was thirsty, did you give them something to drink? When somebody was in prison, did you go and visit them? 
It's about how we live. The Sermon on the Mount, one of the greatest sermons ever recorded, preached, whatever you want to say, the greatest sermon ever, has primarily very little to do with heaven. It's all about how to live here on earth. And it's in the Easter story, if you look for it. John is one of those, he writes his gospel totally different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John Every little detail is significant. And so when John says something different, you're always supposed to stop and say, why did he write it that way? Why did he include it that way? And so let's look at John chapter 19, verse 41. It says, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Now, it's interesting, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't tell us that there was a garden where Jesus was crucified. They don't mention that there was a garden where Jesus was laid. This only comes from John's gospel. So we're supposed to say, why why does John include this? Why is it different? This is significant for John. Is he just really interested in landscaping? No. We're supposed to read that. We're supposed to say, okay, so where are other gardens in the Bible? And you go back to the Garden of Eden, right? Well, John starts his gospel within the beginning. And so we see a place where where John is connecting the story of Jesus to the creation story. In the creation story, God is the gardener, right? He creates man and woman. He places them in the midst of this beautiful paradise. And he says, you know what? You You can have anything you want. It's all for you. The only thing I don't want you to do is I don't want you to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, even if you've never heard their story before, you know what they wanted to do. They wanted to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They walked past it. They thought, man, that fruit looks good. Smells really good. Maybe they grabbed it. They touched it, rubbed it on their cheek. Eventually they bit it. And we know what happens when they bit it. All of a sudden pain came. Everything became harder for them. We know this is part of the the truth of the story because we've all heard the enemy whisper to us, you should do this knowing that you shouldn't do it. And as soon as you do, pain comes. You have struggles in your marriage, struggles in your finances. You lose your job. Maybe for some people it's even physical death. Jesus is wanting us to see that on the cross, Jesus is taking the, the curse and he's reversing it. He has come to restore paradise. He takes all the pain, all the hate, all the sin, all the brokenness, and he bears the curse. And he's laid to rest, seemingly defeated, but when he is raised from the dead, the curse has been broken. Now, if you're not really sure that this is what John is saying, he let's continue to read Mary Magdalene's story in John chapter 20. It says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Mary said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. 
Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now Mary doesn't recognize in the Jesus in the story because he appears as a gardener. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you can just kind of assume Jesus is in these white flowing robes. But here he shows up in overalls with his fingernails dirty. The image of Jesus as a gardener is supposed to show us that he has come to set things right, to restore paradise. Now, in the Garden of Eden, when God creates the garden, who's supposed to take care of the garden? Mankind. And Jesus does the very same thing. He appears to his disciples who are huddled up in a locked room. He appears to them and he says this in John chapter 20, verse 21. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And so on Easter, Jesus commissions all of us who follow him to go into the world and do what he came to do. We're called to go and restore the garden. To make sure that you get the point, Jesus, after sending the disciples, the Bible says that he breathed on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Another place where you're meant to see this connection between God the gardener who breathed spirit into mankind and Jesus, and we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're meant to go into the world and set things right. And that means every day I'm supposed to wake up and I'm supposed to say, send me where you want me to go, God. You're supposed to wake up every day and say, where can I go and restore the garden? Every every conversation we have is an opportunity for us to look and say, are we going to bless people or are we going to curse people? Are we going to build them up or are we going to tear them down? Every day in a hundred different ways, we have an opportunity to either restore the garden or keep the curse in place. We may not complete it in our lifetime, but we are meant to try. We're supposed to wake up every day and say, where on earth does it not look like heaven? And then we are supposed to spend our effort restoring paradise. A couple weeks ago at our church council, Pam Renner, our missions director, um, told this story. If you were there, they told the story about Smith Barnes Elementary, uh, one of the schools that we partner with. And it appears that a couple of years ago, Smith Barnes, the test scores were so low that they really thought about closing Smith Barnes. So this past fall when I got here, Pam and I went over to meet with the administrators and said, what can we do to partner with you? What can we do to help? And the principal said something that was chilling to me and Pam, and it should be chilling to you. He said, the kids are just hungry. And so we provided, started providing backpacks for them for, for kids to have food to eat on the weekends. And, and we have a group of, of people that every other Saturday they meet downstairs and they put snacks together. And so every single day at Smith Barnes Elementary, kids are getting food, to, to snacks to eat. Uh, every week they're getting food to eat. The test scores, when Pam went and talked to them the other day, the test scores at Smith Barnes are not only now some of the best in the state, they are some of the best in the country, and people are clamoring everywhere to get into Smith Barnes Elementary. And the principal, when Pam asked him, well, what's the difference? And he said, the difference is Stockbridge First United Methodist Church. 
Folks, I don't tell you that to build you up, just to brag on you. I tell you that because that's the power of the resurrection. When we make a statement and say, you know what? In heaven, I don't see children who are hungry. And we're going to work our we're going to work ourselves to where we restore paradise. Do you see what a powerful example that can be? I want you to look around this morning on Easter. It's a great day to look at this. Think about all the people who are here. What would it look like if every single one of us wake up every day to live out resurrection faith? How different would the world be if we said we're going to spend every waking moment trying to restore paradise. Easter is not simply a blessing. Easter is a call, a command for us to live every day as if heaven is here on earth. It's an invitation for every single one of us to be people of resurrection faith so at the end we are able to hear the words, well done my good and faithful servant. May we be people of resurrection faith. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are so thankful for this day. John tells us that to step into life is to trust you, to believe in you, to follow your commands. If someone in this room doesn't even know what to pray, Lord, I pray that they simply pray, Jesus, I trust you. I trust in your resurrection. I trust that you live and walk with me every day. I trust in your words. I trust in your message. Lord, you have risen from the grave. Your victory has swallowed up death. Your love will have the final word over every evil, hate, sin, illness. You have broken the curse. Paradise is being restored. There is always hope. And God, I pray for each one of us to realize that we have work to do for you. May we see ourselves in your story and may our story be part of your plan. May we all be people of resurrection faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.